it really comes down to where's that capital most efficiently used. And for businesses, it's typically most efficiently used on either paying down debt, increasing their production, or a variety of both. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Surgeon Syndicate. This is the second half of our conversation with John Bunch. John is an industrial real estate broker from SVN in Kentucky, takes care of pretty much the whole spectrum of industrial real estate, whether you're buying, selling, and leasing. The end of the last episode, we were talking about some of the intricacies of leasing out an industrial space and the risks of different tenants. So welcome back, John. Thank you. So kind of leading on from that leasing and kind of what we were talking before about the risk of the tenant coming in and how much money they cost to come in. When looking at these different types of tenants and the turnover, whether they're using it as a warehouse for distribution or it's a factory or an auto shop, what is the easiest thing to turn over when a tenant leaves? So there's certain things you're like, wow, this one will be great. They'll come in and they'll use it. And when they leave, our turnover will be quick and simple. Yeah, I would say distribution is an easier turnover because a lot of it is pallet racking and they're bolted to the, the racks are bolted to the floor and they're bringing product in and they're shipping it out. So let's just say they grew out of the space and they need a bigger space. A lot of the times it's, hey, we're disabling our IT network, we'll clean up the offices and remove our product, and then they're gone. It's pretty simple. They have a date to be out, and nine times out of 10, they're out on time. More complicated is manufacturing. Someone has a 10,000-pound stamping press and a line of seven of those that are in pits in the ground that have been dug out to accommodate the pressure of those machines, or you've got compressed airlines and You've got heavy electrical running to specific pieces of equipment. That stuff takes a while to decommission and to break down and to move. It's highly specialized equipment. It's very heavy. It can be very dangerous if not approached the right way. And so typically when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about spaces that are 100,000 square foot plus. Now, when they move out after that, that's still part of the lease time while they're doing their breakdown and their move out. Yeah. I mean, typically in leases of that size, someone has to give a notice upwards of 180 days on a minimum that, hey, our intent is to not renew. Purposes for that is, number one, we need to know so we can go out and try to procure other large tenants. And usually on bigger spaces, it's a year or more because that specialized stuff, it, it requires a lot of infrastructure and investment. And so those are 10, 15 year leases typically. And so you know, a year or two out, they're saying, yeah, our plan's here. We're having trouble with labor and we're shutting down. We're moving this to Mexico or we're moving this to somewhere else. I wouldn't say we've seen a lot of that in Kentucky, but it happens. And that stuff takes some time. Takes some time. Are there any things that you know are going to be that are going to require a lot of engineering after somebody leaves on your part once they're out that the environmental studies or anything that you're like, man, if we're going to bring these guys in, we need a long lease. We need something special yeah. to make this better. I wouldn't say like any term or amount of money is worth an environmental hazard as a rule of thumb. I mean, there are ways to deal with very dangerous chemicals in a really safe way. 
I just don't think there's really much excuse for that in this day and age. A lot of environmental hazards are just from negligence. Someone thought they could just go outside and pour their recycled oil on the ground. And that's just wrong and negligent. Um, and these big companies, a lot of these big companies, they're worried about their corporate image as well. Like a GE, like they manufacture light bulbs forever, right? Mercury, a lot of heavy metals, a lot of pretty nasty stuff. They will, to their best, remediate as much as they can. And they want to be indemnified moving forward against any potential liability because word gets out on the Wall Street Journal that a bunch of people got sick because they got lead poisoning or something from this factory because they didn't properly handle their materials is inexcusable. And you can get really sick from environmental contamination. So we always recommend buyers, investors, anyone to do their due diligence. It's perfectly within reason for a tenant to ask if there's a clean phase one in a property. You should always have a clean phase one on file, if not a phase two. And if you have to remediate, there's great ways to remediate that are fairly cost effective. I think that's one of the nuanced things. A lot of folks just, if it ever has a phase one, they just, and it comes back that there's something that's found, they just run and run for the hills and don't pursue it. But sometimes it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, you can bury it. There are ways that the environmental companies and engineers will advise you on how to go about remediating what the issue was. And there's also some government programs we have the Brownfield Redevelopment Program that we enroll the properties in, and the Brownfield Fund will contribute to some of that cleanup. So I've enrolled several properties in that program, but I defer to some of our engineers on more details on that. So that's something that really, if you're looking at a property, and that'd be if somebody were new to this space and wanting to invest, that the broker would help show them, hey, you need an environmental study on this. You need to bring the engineers in or... Yeah, I mean... I would recommend on any asset getting a phase one. I mean, they're 2,000, 2,500 bucks, generally speaking, depending on the size of asset, where you are in the country, they can be more or less. And like an ALSA survey, running the title across the survey with an engineering firm, it's invaluable. They're four or 5,000 bucks and they tell you where all the utilities are. They tell you how big the buildings are to about an inch. I mean, they're in our business, I tell people constantly, someone trying to save 2,500 bucks on a $3 million building, I'm just like, guys. In our business, it's incredibly expensive to be cheap. It just is. And a lot of times, if you're putting debt on a property, a bank's going to tell you, hey, we need a phase one. It's a non-negotiable. And it should be. You're saving yourself a lot of pain and heartache. I don't care if you can pay all cash. That's great. But like, do your due diligence. If somebody were new, and this is really part of the, as we're talking to maybe some investors who are looking at doing something on their own. So the bank, if you have a bank, if the bank's involved, that's going to give you a level of protection because the bank is going to kind of make you do these things. Usually, <laughs> hopefully. Well, their interest is protecting themselves, but it would help you in the end. But then if somebody came in and they're like, oh yeah, I got this cash. I just received an inheritance or whatever. They sold their practice. <laughs> And they've been told by somebody, hey, I own this warehouse and it's awesome. The same people have been in there for 20 years. You should go buy a warehouse. So they come to you and they've got a bucket of money and they say, John, I want to buy a warehouse. A good broker would walk them through this process and making sure that they spent the money on the intelligence. Yeah, 100%. I mean, someone that's been doing this for a while... I recommend working with folks that have some expertise or at least in an office where they're being taught properly on how to advise folks. There's risk in investments, in any investment. 
right? And commercial real estate, they're not safe from it being risk-free either, right? There's risk to these, but yes, I mean, your due diligence period is crucially important. And the time period that you have to do it is crucially important. We recently just wrapped up a deal as a 100,000 square foot building. And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, but the purchaser was represented by a residential real estate agent. And the time period to close was 30 days. And I'm on the other side representing the seller. And if someone offers me to close in 30 days, I'll take it because I'm <laughs> representing the seller. Right. But in the back of my mind, I know there's no way this guy can do the due diligence that he needs to do to properly vet this asset. And it's just, hey, I don't know how this woman got involved in this deal. But at the end of the day, like she did him a great disservice. And it was very clear from the point that they wrote the offer all the way down to our closing that she did. Now, I don't think she would admit that. And I don't think there was any malice intent in that. But you can get in a lot of trouble not hiring the right people. It's similar in medicine, right? I mean, listen, you need to be able to go to a specialist who's educated, who is referred to you. People do a lot of vetting when it comes to their health. There's a lot of similarities in investing. I see doctors make bad financial decisions a lot. And a lot of it is just the lack of due diligence. It's not that they don't have the funds. It's just, hey, I'm investing in this real estate fund because three other doctors in our office are in it. That's a horrible reason to invest in a real estate fund. It's like you do your same due diligence on funds. Who's running it? How long have they been running it? Where are they buying it? Are they buying it right? What's their hold period? Do they have any money invested in skin in the game along with these 10 doctors who put up $7 million? Right? I mean, are they doing phase ones? What is their process of due diligence? If someone's asking you for $200,000 or quarter million dollars to put into a fund, you have every right to ask every one of those questions. And a lot of doctors don't. That's great. So that's even one that if a doc's looking at this just from the very beginning, is asking the questions from somebody who's in that field and like who might know more. I think it's for a lot of the residential realtors and nothing against the residential realtors. If you're buying a house, they probably do a great job. Yeah. Your dad was a vascular surgeon and I'm a urologist. If you go to the vascular surgeon for prostate surgery, it might not turn out so well. If you go to the urologist for a femoral bypass, eh, maybe not the best idea. I pull it off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You even said in the beginning, you don't do retail. Why? Because the industrial space. Yeah. And if a tenant is like, yeah, what is the average CI allowance for a 10-year term in this market? I don't know. And here's the other thing. There's a lot of professionals outside of real estate agents that can be leveraged that you already have relationships with as doctors. For instance, your CPA. You should talk to your CPA about real estate funds and deals when they send you a slide deck that's 10 pages long. Hey, poke holes in this for me. What do you like? What do you not like? If it's an industrial fund, call a local industrial SILR. An SILR is the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. You have to be doing a serious amount of production and be in the business at least five years. Find an SILR in your market and say, hey, I'm looking at this fund. What do you like about it? What do you not like? You have access, a phone call away. Call an attorney. Someone send you an operating agreement. Now, a lot of times on funds and things like that, you're dead to rights. It's, hey, you're going to put your money in. They're going to do what they will when they want, right? And you'll get your money when they get it back, if they get it back. But ask your attorney to review the documents. Again, just like a phase one 
like expensive to be cheap. Don't look at a million or $250,000 investment and not be willing to spend 300 bucks an hour getting some reviewed. See it all the and time. That's, and asking the right one, ask your attorney, hey, do you have any experience in commercial real estate? Do you know right. somebody who does or who yes. would you call? Often what happens is people are reaching out to who they know. They know a realtor and they don't know that beyond the realtor down the street that there's you who specializes in industrial and ask them, have you done this before? Do you know somebody who does? And they should know then if you ask them that question. Yeah. Hey, there are people who do this. And there's certain like SILR, there's certain communities of folks who you have to be the highest echelon to be involved in those and figuring out where those are. But to your point, yeah, does you no good to call a divorce attorney or a CPA who doesn't do a lot of real estate, just like it does you no good to call you with a femoral bypass, right? There is good things in that you probably know some general surgeons in your area, but you got to keep calling the right people. You need someone in contract law. You need someone in business law. You need someone who's seen a lease or two, et cetera. But that's a good point, though. If you know somebody who you trust and you say, hey, my neighbor, urologist, I need this vascular thing. Can you recommend somebody? They'll be able to start pointing you in the right direction within their network. And so that'll help some. But yeah, your bankers, if you've got a bank you've worked with, and typically yeah. those banks will have a commercial division. And we were looking to build a surgery center. And my bank didn't want to touch it with a hundred foot pole. Like they'd had a bad experience. They weren't during surgery centers. Found another bank who loved owner occupied surgery centers more than anything. And it was this process of finding somebody who understood it. And then they also brought some expertise where they said, Hey, make sure you do these things that helped us see a few things that maybe our architect and engineers hadn't really talked about yet. So that's great. I have one question. This kind of goes all the way back that I was going to ask before, because I always get this from doctors and especially looking at bigger industrial properties. And they think, okay, so if you're a big enough company to rent out 10,000 square feet or 100,000 square feet, why don't they own their own buildings? Why are they leasing? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's a lot of different answers to that. I'll start by saying this, like the general returns on real estate are not as good as business returns. Typically speaking, if you're running a business, you're taking more risk than owning a piece of real estate. So for instance, if you're making widgets and you've invested a lot of capital and infrastructure and equipment and everything like that, typically you're doing that as an investment decision because your returns and your profits on those widgets that you're making are going to be 15% plus. No one's in business for sub 10% returns, at least not for very long. Right. Yeah. And there's liability along with owning your real estate. Like FedEx, they don't own any of their real estate, but they own all their trucks. Now, part of that's a business decision. You can rapidly depreciate trucks. Now, you could rapidly depreciate real estate through cost seg on like a one time basis, but those guys make a lot more money filling up trucks and shipping things all over the world than they do owning their real estate. So it's really just a use of capital. Like you see a lot of companies right now doing sale leasebacks. And so what they're doing is they're saying, hey, we own our building. We're going to sell our building and we're going to lease it back for 10, 15, 20 years. And we're going to take the funds from selling our building and we're going to use those to grow our business because those funds that are sitting in that building 
could be utilized to buy a new piece of equipment that's going to increase their production, that's going to help them sell more widgets at a higher rate than their return on their real estate, which generally speaking, for guys like us, 8 10% on a long-term hold is great. We get benefits of the depreciation. We get benefits of cost seg. If we do that, we get debt pay down, principal reduction. There's a lot of benefits, right, for long-term holders, especially from folks who are doctors making a lot of capital. You need some offsets, some losses as well. And so it really comes down to where's that capital most efficiently used. And for businesses, it's typically most efficiently used on either paying down debt, increasing their production, or a variety of both. That's awesome. That was probably exactly the answer I was looking for. Because now it makes simple to make sense that their money is better spent putting it into the business the cash they have on hand and then paying that lease out over time than having a bunch of money stuck in a piece of real estate. Yeah. I mean, different businesses have different models, right? I mean, we work with businesses who own all their real estate. They want the control over it all, et cetera. Usually those are ESOP companies where a lot of the employees are sharing in the benefits of those things. But typically speaking, your returns on business are they're better and that capital can be utilized to grow a business quickly or to put it in just a better financial position. A lot of folks, when rates were 3%, just like people were buying real estate like crazy, they were buying equipment, they were investing in their business. And all of a sudden, those rates weren't fixed for 30 years like a house. They're floating rates over prime or some kind of index. And they're looking at their million dollar piece of equipment and being like, man, this got a lot more expensive. Uh And so now they can recapitalize the real estate. They can take those funds and they can pay down debt and get themselves in a little bit healthier position. So there's a variety of reasons. I was talking to a doc the other day, and they had this impression that on a sale lease back, that they must be trying to unload the building, that there was something wrong with it. So they wanted to sell it to somebody else and make it somebody else's problem, which I guess could always be a possibility. But most time you're dealing with a business, and especially if they're leasing it back, if they were moving out, maybe they're trying to get away from a problem. But it's more of a financial move than all these other things that we may dream up of when just comparing it to selling a house that we live in. Well, one thing too, I like the posture of that doctor to say, well, how are they trying to pull one over on me? That is a posture you should take in due diligence. I like that posture. It's defensive. But the big question to ask in a sale leaseback is, what are you using the money for? That's a fair question. Are you using this money to grow? Are you in a dangerous debt position where you might not make it out of this thing in a couple of years, even though you're signing a quote unquote 10-year lease back? Right? Those are good questions to be asking. There are companies that are trying to recapitalize their real estate who don't do it successfully through their business and they go out. In a sale lease back, that's my first question. Okay, let's say we give you $20 million for a 10-year lease back. What are you going to do with it? Okay. Not to say you can hold their feet to the fire to do it, but they've got a plan for that capital. They've gone through the rigmarole of listing it and providing their financials and getting all that stuff out to the market. They have a plan for when this transaction closes, where they're going to use those funds. And I would advise anyone to ask. And they should like to tell you that story, I would think. That yeah, they're evasive, I mean, I mean, then you don't have to buy the building. So Right. I mean, they're you, trying to get their number. So, I mean, hopefully they're not selling you something that's not true. But if someone's like, well, we just thought it'd be nice to have $20 million lying around. It's like, <laughs> I'd stay away from that one. That goes back to what you were saying about they'd rather have the money to make more widgets 
because they're going to get a better return on it than sitting in the building. Yeah. I mean, if someone says, hey, we're buying a new line of stamping presses and we're going to put it in a state-of-the-art paint booth, that shows me that they're investing $15 million of infrastructure into the building, which also tells me they're probably not leaving. Right. Okay. Whereas yeah. we got a facility kind of fledgling out in Wisconsin and we're trying to cover some lease repayments over there. And you're like, yeah, that's different. That's a really different story. So, okay. Well, it's great. I'm going to shift here again a little bit. I'm just going to go that uh, here in your bio, your superpower is delegating your time. And I think docs struggle with that. Tell me about your philosophy on delegating time. I mean, similar, I mean, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, all those guys, you have the benefit of compounding, right? And compounding, like the greatest gift that you have is time and compounding business is similar. If you're wasting a bunch of time, it's hard for your business to compound. I think one of the challenges that doctors face is you all don't really get to start compounding investments until you're like 35 years old. You graduate, you go to medical school, you do a fellowship, you do a a residency, and then maybe you specialize in something, and then you're 35 years old, you have a quarter million to half million dollars in debt, and then you start working and actually making some decent money. And compounding starts then, but that's a long time to wait. And I think for brokers, we get a lot of calls about, hey, I want to invest in this. It's like, okay, asking the right questions. Well, why? Where's your capital coming from? These might feel like forward questions to somebody, but to me, they're really important. It's important for me to vet out who I'm working with and their capacity to perform should we find an asset that they're describing that they want. Brokers don't have an infinite amount of time. And I would say a lot of our time is spent working on things that never happen. And so we'd be working on things that will happen and to vet out opportunities that are more likely to close than not. By close, I mean signing a lease or helping someone buy a building. And so it's having realistic expectations. Someone calls me and says, hey, I want to buy a 10,000 square foot building. My budget's $100,000. I can tell you from market knowledge, we're probably going to be around a million dollars on a building like that in Lexington right now. So if I'm not asking about their criteria and their budget and their timeline, and all of a sudden I go out and show them five, 10,000 square foot buildings, that's a huge waste of time. With doctors too, it's like, hey, you should probably interview two or three brokers that you're thinking about working with if you're looking to go buy an investment and figure out who knows more about what and, and kind of get a feel for who you jive with best. And just so you're not having some retail broker, which nothing against retail brokers. Most of my friends are retail brokers, but you're not having a retail broker taking you out to look at five or six warehouses. It's not a good use of your time. So as a broker, you'd rather have a short conversation to find out, to explore whether it's a good relationship then start putting a bunch of time into trying to make a deal happen to down the road. I mean, you're yeah. evaluating from the beginning if this is a deal that has any potential to happen. Yeah. I mean, very rarely are deals in our business like forced. No one's forcing your hand to buy a million or $2 million building. There's questions that you can ask on the front end, which might sound a little intrusive and maybe a little cold, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how they're asked. But a lot of people think that real estate agents, they just run around, try to get as many deals done as possible. And there's probably some truth to that, but it can be really expensive and costly to not vet out clients to know what they want, what their goals are, and to not have an initial consultation, if you want to call it that, to say, you want to work with me, but I've been in this business long enough. It's like, do I want to work with you? Uh huh. I'm interviewing you as much as you're interviewing me. I mean, I've had plenty of people over the years that 
I've done plenty of transactions with. At the end of the day, I just didn't enjoy working with them. And I'm not going to work with those people. You know? <laughs> and that's probably better because I would think a successful broker has business. They're not scrapping for every little thing. And so it's okay to have somebody who really questions if they want to work with you. Right. And it's like, hey, are you teachable? If someone's never invested in an asset class, but also wants to talk about how knowledgeable and how wealthy they are, it's like, if you're asking for my expertise, are you going to listen to it? That doesn't mean that you don't ask questions and dig further and analyze and investigate. But there's a lot of folks who are the smartest guy in the room. This is an industry where that can severely hurt you. And so find someone that you can mesh with and jive with pretty well. But when you're asking an advisor to advise you, it's good to listen. It's not to say that we don't make mistakes. We are imperfect people as everyone is, but there's always room for conversation and further questioning and understanding. But that's part of the interviewing process as well. And just people asking me and me asking them, like, it's important. I'll say this on any note because I have to run, but one of our advisors in our office, a lot of folks will say, they'll call us, they're looking for apartments. And we tell them, hey, we work on exclusives and exclusive listing agreements saying that we're going to work to find them assets. And if they see an asset that's outside of something we send to them, they're going to send it to us. We're going to bet it and run the deal. Right. And those are usually six months at a time. And those incentivized brokers know that their time is protected and that you've committed to them. And it's a good thing to do, generally speaking. And one of our senior agents put listing agreement in front of a large capital group who bought multifamily. And they say, listen, we don't really like excuse uh, exclusive. We found that a lot of the brokers that we've signed those with don't do their job and they kind of suck. You know, <laughs> and the response from one of our senior advisors was, "Well, we found that a lot of principals that sign these actually kind of suck." <laughs> you know? So I say all that to say, like, it goes both ways. People have to communicate, work hard, work together, be on the same page, align your interests, take the time to do that. It's important. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for being here. I sure appreciate your time. If somebody wants to reach out to you, LinkedIn's the best place. Yeah, LinkedIn, my phone number, my personal cell phone number and email are plastered over the World Wide Web. So it is not hard to reach me. LinkedIn messages, you know, is great. I'm readily available. So yeah, email, cell phone, LinkedIn. I don't have any social media. So All right, everybody. Well, thank you for being here. John, thank you for being here. To all our listeners, thank you for being here. And join us next time on The Surgeon Syndicate. Thank you. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.